you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 6 as we continue our study of John's Gospel. John chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 15. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this glorious text, for this wonderful sign. But if we are to learn the lessons of it, we need your spirit to be at work, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, shape us and mold us during this time under your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So how do you experience lack? Not having enough of something. It could be anything. Not smart enough, not gifted enough. I need this thing. I don't have enough money. How do you experience lack? Notice I didn't ask you. Have you ever experienced lack? Because every single one of us in this room have experienced lack. This miracle is called the feeding of the 5,000, but before we even get to the feeding of the 5,000, we need to see the lack. We need to see a need is being put on display here, a great need for physical care, for sustenance, for actual food to eat. The lack of food probably doesn't dominate our lives, but it does the lives of our neighbors, those who live in our community. 
The hungry, the poor, Jesus says, are with us always. So far in John, we've seen lack put on display time and time again. Lack of faith, lack of wine at a wedding feast, lack on the ability of Nicodemus to see what Jesus was trying to tell him, a lack of a man to heal himself, a lack of a father to be able to do anything about his son, homesick, dying. Time and time again, John is bringing lack and needs up. I think the main application in all of that and in our text today is this one reality, and that is we need Christ Jesus. We need him. All of us have lack. And he is the one who fills that lack. The text before us today puts poverty on display in this need of the people and the way that Jesus meets that need. And all the mess-ups of our life. And all the ways that we lack and all our mistakes and our lack of knowledge, lack of skill, lack of money, lack of wisdom, and sickness in the fall. We need Christ. We need Him. We'll see today's text in four parts, a meaningful setting, a massive need, a massive meal, and a misunderstood king. First, this meaningful setting in verses 1 through 4, it really is remarkable. All along in John, we're supposed to pay attention to to tiny details. It opens simply after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Great. It's very mundane. Jesus went from this place to this other place, climbed up on a mountain, sat down, everybody sat down. We see this a lot in the Gospels. We need to remember, though, the the backdrop and the, the context a little bit to see significance here. He was just in Jerusalem, and his enemies were, those opposing him, were ready to kill him. Do you remember that? And last week we heard Jesus identified as the key to understanding the scriptures themselves. If you are ever going to understand the word of God, you have to see it through the lens of Christ. And in bringing these things out, do you remember, this is at the very end of what Joe talked about last week, Jesus puts Moses on the scene. The text ends like this. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Moses is, is in our brains, right? And then we turn here to chapter 6. Jesus brings Moses into the setting. And he has just told us he is greater than Moses. He is a better leader than Moses. He is a better provider than Moses for God's people. In fact, Moses, he says, look forward to me. 
Now, if you want to rile up people in Jerusalem, equivocate yourself with God, which he absolutely did, and then say you're greater than Moses. Moses was like a superhero to them. Like when all the costumes would go on sale, you would have to rush out and get the Moses one first because it would sell out. They loved Moses, and Jesus is saying, I'm better. I'm superior. And then we come to, to this text. The setting isn't just another setting. It, the, the setting is very significant. Jesus goes across the sea. A, a huge crowd is following him, verse 2. Jesus goes up on a mountain, verse 3, and I left out probably the most significant detail, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. You have echoes of Exodus going on right here. This is another Exodus of God's people. The, the true leader, Jesus, the, the, the true Exodus leader is finally here. He is on the scene. Here is the Passover lamb. Do you remember all the stories? Moses leading the people through the water to the mountain to meet with God, thundering down to them from the top of the mountain. All through the work, the death, the slaughter of lambs. You remember what John said earlier about Jesus? Look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, in these tiny little details, what we get perspective on is Jesus is here to lead us on another exodus. He is our Exodus Lord. Problem is, some of us here might not be thinking we need an Exodus. Some, some of the people of Israel later looked back on what God had done in taking them out of the land and said, man, those meat pots back in Egypt were delicious. I kind of wish we could go back to bondage back there. My life was easier. This is hard out here following Jesus. I think some of us are right in that place right there. We enjoy life the old way. Let this text confront you and challenge you in that. Next we see this, this massive need. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? So that these people may eat. It's a huge crowd of people. Down in verse 10, he's going to tell us 5,000 men. You can't think this is a, a group of all just men, and this is the way they would have counted groups. Maybe 10,000 people. Huge. That is, a, that is a lot of people. This massive crowd goes all the way around the sea to, to follow Jesus. And Jesus exposes so many layers of need by what he does next. He, he does it all at once, and he does it in this odd way. He looks at Philip, one of his disciples, and says, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? In Mark, we, we read that Jesus put it bluntly to all his disciples, you give them something to eat. 
See, he's, he's peeling back layers. Imagine what Philip must have thought in that moment. What? The text tells us how he's going to process it, but I could imagine him just his jaw dropping open, like, huh? Me? 5,000 people over there, at least. Maybe 10,000 people on their way. You want me to feed them? Asking the disciples to to make lunch for some 10,000 people. And Jesus is leading his people in sanctification. He's teaching them. He's setting them apart. He's exposing their need. He's he's exposing their lack. Verse 6 tells us that it clues us in. He said this to test them because he knew already what he was going to do. Have you ever been tested like this in your discipleship? Have you ever felt totally overwhelmed trying to follow Christ's lead? I have. And I think if we're honest, each and every one of us have been challenged as we follow Christ. It is challenging. He continues to test his people. He continues to force us to trust his goodness. For all of us tested in our discipleship, verse 6 is a bomb. When you are going through a trial, know this, Jesus isn't shocked not shocked. When when you're being tested, Jesus knows you might not know what to do. Jesus already knows. He already has a plan. You don't have to freak out. Jesus knows. Even putting the question to Philip, he already knew what he was going to do. He uses that as a drill to get into our hearts and say, It says this, do do you trust me? Do you know who I am? Jesus already knew that he was going to perform this this wonder. He wanted to test. Listen, Jesus is not surprised when sickness strikes us. He is not surprised when we hear the word cancer. He is not surprised when we lose a job. When we lose a family member or a friend. Yes, sin and all these things grieve him, but he is still in control. Why wouldn't he just tell Philip, hey, here's the plan. And you see all those people over there? I'm about to do something crazy, and I'm going to feed all of them with just a very little bit of food, and I'm going to blow your mind. No, he wants to teach him trust. He wants him to remember his identity. He wants wants Philip and the disciples to know in their lack, in their inability, in their utter inability that he is able. In verse 7, Philip responds with cold economic rationality. Takes out a calculator. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. He's thinking eight months wages. 
a significant amount of money. We could, we could gather that maybe they had this much money. We, we don't know. But basically, he's saying we could take all the money we have and we could go find bread and everybody would just get a little nibble, a little bite. It's not enough. He looks at his calculator. Jesus says, give them something to eat. And he can't do it. It won't work, Jesus. We see this pattern again and again in Scripture of God calling people to do things that are too hard or even impossible for them to do, and then God provides. Abraham called by God to, to take Isaac with him and a whole bunch of wood and to go up a, up a mountain and there to sacrifice his son. Can you imagine? It's the same thing. It's drilling into his heart and saying, do you trust me? He's walking up with the son. The son is like, we have everything here to worship on the mountain like this. To, to build an altar. We, we have all the stuff. Where's the sacrifice? What do you think ran through Abraham's heart at that moment? We could still see even there, God knew what he was going to do. He already knew it. He drills in to say, do you trust me? Am I good? Time and time again, Desperation leads to faith. Jesus is the ultimate provision. Jesus is the one we ultimately need. And that is the lesson Jesus is teaching Philip. Philip, you need me. Put your calculator away. You can't figure this out with cold rationality. It's not going to work. Philip, you need me. Quinn, you need me. Grace, Presbyterian Church, we need Christ. And he will take us to that place. He will show us that reality again and again and again. He will force his people into this place. It's a bit of glory in this next verse. The opening of John's gospel, we read, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is going to be on display in John's gospel. We see glory in the smallness of what Jesus uses here. Listen to verses 8 and 9 again. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Philip says it costs too much and we don't have enough money. Andrew is looking at the scant resources that they do have. Hey, this one kid over here brought a lunchbox. Maybe his mom packed it for him when he was on the way out the door to join this crowd and come over here. He's coming out with his like superhero lunch pail. It's not much. And they're pointing, he's pointing to the smallness of it. Andrew's not bringing this to Jesus, by the way, saying, oh, you're about to do this great sign. He's saying, this is all the lunch we have. Nobody's got lunch. Five loaves of barley bread, which in history is the bread of 
the inexpensive bread of the poorer classes and slaves, and only two fish. I think the glory of Christ is going to be on display because of the poverty of their resources. They don't have much. And what they do have is it's for the poor. Jesus, time and time again, loves overwhelming odds. Overwhelming odds. This is the way the gospel works. It happens again and again and again. David and Goliath, how is this little kid going to deal with this massive, cursing tank of a man? Again and again and again in Scripture, we see that just because something looks small and weak does not mean it is insignificant. And all of those lessons are designed to point us to Jesus. He looks normal. He's a man. And yet by his life, death, and resurrection, we are invited to have life, eternal life in him. It looks so insignificant to the world, yet it's not. He overwhelms the odds. Again, we see glory in this poverty. Why doesn't Jesus just make something of nothing? Why doesn't he just say, I've got it? I've got it. We'll give everybody a steak dinner, a lobster, and, and I'll just give you all of that. We know that he can do it. He spoke all things into existence. Even when we think we don't have the resources to serve or love others, God can use what we have. Even little children, even the lunch of a little boy. I think that's the lesson. I love this quote by A.W. Pink. Quote, he did not scorn the loaves because they were few in number, nor the fish because they were small. How this tells us that God is pleased to use small and weak things. Dear Christian, perhaps he is ready to use you, weak, insignificant, and ignorant though you may be, but mark it carefully. It was only as these loaves and fishes were placed into the hands of Christ that they were made efficient and sufficient, end quote. Maybe he can use even me. Even me. But it's only in his hands that these five loaves and two fish feed thousands. They have to be in the hands of Christ. Now let's turn to Jesus' provision of this massive meal. He, he sees this massive need. He puts it on display. He says, your calculator's not going to fix it. Andrew's like, hey, but, but we have this tiny little lunch. He, he's not seeing, neither one of them are seeing Jesus. And look at what he does. Have the people sit down. And then that beautiful verse, now there was much grass in that place, so they sat down about 5,000 in number. I love that. The shepherd, shepherding his flock, having them sit down in the grass, stop clamoring, stop going crazy, you're not going to starve, sit down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Later in John, we'll hear Jesus say that he is the good shepherd whose voice 
we hear. I think the glory of Jesus here is he's showing us just that. He is shepherding his people. He is providing for his people. The scene isn't crazy enough. There's only five loaves and two fish. Now Jesus gives thanks to God for this meal. Think about that. Philip has his calculator. Andrew has the smallness of the situation. And Jesus does two things. Sit, rest, and he turns heavenward. He gives thanks to God. Everybody else is looking at everything else, and Jesus, the the very Son of God, looks heavenward. He gives thanks with these five barley loaves and two small fish. He thanks God. text simply says in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. All everybody else could see was lack. And Jesus provides a feast for thousands. Told that there was so much food provided from those five loaves and two small fish that everybody ate that was there ate a full meal. They were all satisfied. There were 12 baskets full left over. Lunch began out of this superhero pail that came from home, this tiny little thing. And at the end, 12 men are gathering baskets of food. 12 of them. There's way more food left at the end. You have to see that. There's way more food left at the end than there was at the beginning. Thousands of people were full. I don't, I don't know what it's like to feed a lot of people. You guys do. You fed a lot of people yesterday. And some of you know what, it, what it's like to, to feed, prepare food and feed a lot of people. 10,000 people is a lot. This would have taken a long time. And the people who were in the know had to come back and see. And and we know from the other places that the disciples were running the food. And they come back and there's always more and more and more out of this situation of poverty. This is a sign. It's a sign layered with meaning pointing to larger realities and The next week or two we'll read in the rest of John 6, Jesus is going to explain this. And the people that are clamoring for him at the end of this miracle are going to be the ones walking away from him when he finally explains what he's doing here. Numbers have meaning. He's 12 baskets full. What's going on with that? It's the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the full and complete number of the people of God. Listen to this. The blessings of Christ will never run out for his people. There's always enough of him to go around. Always. Anytime you hear the 12 tribes on display, think the fullness of the people of God. Think all of his church. We are these 12 baskets. He will gather us up and nothing will be wasted. 
There's enough of Jesus. There's enough of him to go around for you and me. Later in this chapter, we'll hear this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And listen to this. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gives me, but raise it up on the last day. He's not going to leave behind fragments. Some of us here may feel like, hey, I'm just a fragment left over and discarded. No, you're not. Jesus loses nothing. The sign now accomplished. What do we make of it? It's kind of a bummer of an ending because he, he, he's this misunderstood king. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. This is him. But Jesus sees it different, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I think that's a bummer ending. We've heard warnings from Jesus himself about just wanting signs and not wanting him. Wanting him for his stuff, wanting him for what he can do, but not wanting him for who he actually is. You see, John doesn't critique their, their perception of him as king. It's the kind of king that he is. Who wouldn't want a king who could win your political battles and give you three meals a day? This is great. Jesus can provide for us The attention of the people is on food and victory over their political and national enemies, not on Jesus himself as the incarnate Son of God. That's why John starts with who Jesus is, as big as he could possibly get. He's going he's to present time and time again. People are going to misunderstand Jesus. They're just going to want Jesus for what's in it for them. And Jesus is having none of it. He is king, but not the kind of king they want. The question comes to us here at the end. What kind of king do we want Jesus to be for us? What kind of a ruler are you looking for? See, I think sometimes, too, we, like the crowd, want Jesus to just fix our problems today. Jesus, why aren't you hearing me? Why haven't you fixed this yet? Without ever really acknowledging the deeper, more pressing needs that we have, which Jesus came for. The people wanted Jesus to give them a meal when in fact Jesus came, lived, and died, was raised from the dead to end hunger. Yes, provide this meal, but in glory there will be no more hungry. Nobody will ever be hungry. Jesus came, turned water into wine, not just to help one celebration, but to introduce the fact that he himself is worthy of cosmic celebration. That's the kind of king he is. 
He heals the official son, not because he was the only sick child on earth, but to let us know that through him, one day, there will be no more sickness. In him, that's the kind of king he is. He came to utterly wipe it away. Jesus heals the blind and deaf to point to the reality that these things should not be. And in him, one day, they will utterly be wiped away. Jesus raises the dead with a word to show that he is the resurrection and the life. He does all these things pointing to the central reality of our world that it is cursed. It is cursed. It is a sin-filled, cursed world. And Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, rolls that curse back. That's the kind of king he is. You can't come to him just wanting him to give us a meal. You're not coming, doing that, and I'm not saying, yes, ask him to provide, please. But know the kind of king he is. He came to roll back the curse and make all things new. Will you accept him as that kind of king? Why does Jesus not participate in this coronation ceremony? We see him time and time again saying, it's not my hour. The time has not yet come. Instead of letting them coronate him, and, and because we know that he is king, why doesn't he, why doesn't he just accept this royal uh, appointment and run with it? Thousands are there, a, a, a large political faction. It's not his hour. One day we will see him ride into Jerusalem, a conquering king, sitting on the colt of a donkey, triumphant and beautiful. He will receive an anointing. A royal anointing will happen to him. He will accept it. He will receive a crown. And a robe. He will be coronated king. But not the kind of king they were looking for. The king of glory. Come to die for people like you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your coronation, for bearing all of that to the cross, conquering death and glorious resurrection. May we accept you that glorious king, the one who cares about the hungry in this world, but also who came to end all hunger. May we acknowledge you as that kind of king. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.